Harvard and Yale and the recipient of a number of awards, including the National Security Medal and the Secretary's Distinguished Service Award at the State Department. The ambassador currently is, among other things, the vice chairman of McClarty Associates, an international strategic advisory firm based here in Washington. With that, please join me in welcoming back Ambassador John Negroponte. Ambassador, over to you. Thank you very much, Clark. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, uh, Reverend Fisher, thank you uh, for letting me uh, join you uh, today at St. John's. As uh, Clark mentioned, I, I, or alluded to, I've had the opportunity to speak uh, to uh, your Sunday morning group once uh, before, and it's a pleasure to do so again. So I was invited to talk a little bit about uh, foreign policy, uh, in the next administration, and uh, I'm happy to try and do that, although uh, I must admit it's somewhat speculative. My comments will be somewhat speculative uh, in nature. Perhaps the best place to start is with uh, what Mr. Biden himself has said are going to be uh, his priorities, and I, I list four that he's mentioned. Uh, Battling the COVID crisis, uh, he lists as number one. Uh, restoring our economy, number two. Uh, number three is strengthening, refreshing our alliances and partnerships around the world. And four is the, I've sort of extrapolated this from everything else he said, I, I would add as fourth, uh, tackling the climate change issue. And uh, I guess one of the first things you can uh, say uh, about this list of priorities is uh, while uh, three out of the four, COVID, the economy, and climate have a strong domestic uh, component, uh, they, they all uh, lend themselves uh, to uh, uh, the foreign policy rubric uh, as well and are very much uh, a potential part of our international uh, relationships. Uh, I do think the president uh, at initially is going to focus uh, on domestic issues, particularly the COVID crisis, because obviously we've got to get that under control. And presumably when he takes office on the 20th of January, I think the main issue is going to be, at least domestically, is how we can ramp up adequate supply of the vaccine to provide coverage to our own population as quickly as possible. But lurking behind that priority, I believe, is the broader question, which is worth at least reflecting upon, which is what is going to be our contribution to vaccinating uh, the other 7.8 billion people on this planet. Obviously, uh, other countries are gonna be involved as well, but it would appear to me that this is an issue that uh, lends itself to international cooperation. Although I think we, uh, there's also a, uh, a lurking fear that uh, perhaps it uh, could be also an element of international competition uh, as well, particularly with respect to the vaccines. Uh, on the uh, economy, that obviously uh, will also have uh, a, a, an international uh, component 
uh, to it as we work to uh, restore the uh, economy after uh, uh, the vaccine begins to take hold. And I think there probably the president's uh, policy to the extent that it has an international component is going to have to do with uh, uh, trade policy uh, and uh, related matters. Uh, on refurbishing uh, the alliances, I think there uh, the administration has pretty much nowhere to go but, but up in terms of uh, the current state of our alliance relationships there, which are at the very best fraught with uh, ambiguity. There are a number of things that uh, the current administration has done that have actually had the effect of fortifying our alliances, such as uh, sending troops to the Baltic states uh, early in the administration, uh, the re reaffirmation, albeit grudging uh, at various points of our uh, NATO uh, alliance, but I think uh, there's a lot more that can be done to uh, robustly uh, embrace our alliances, and I think that's exactly what the president uh, wants to do. The president-elect, he has in his rhetoric, for example, referred uh, uh, at least once to the, the NATO alliance as being uh, sacred, and uh, I think he he believes that way and and will uh, act uh, accordingly. Uh, on climate, of course, uh, John Kerry is going to be a, a, a strong force uh, in the White House and in and internationally for uh, getting us back to the climate agreement uh, in Paris, which President-elect Biden has said uh, he's going to uh, restore our relationship with that agreement uh, on day one when he takes uh, office. I think the practicalities of, uh, of achieving sufficient restrictions on CO2 emissions so that we can actually achieve the goal of a less than two, two degree Celsius increase in uh, temperature by 2050 is going to be uh, another uh, problem. Let me just talk a little bit about um, uh, President Biden's team. I think uh, the team that you choose to carry out these kinds of policies is very important. Uh, I think that uh, the Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, and others uh, are uh, experienced uh, pragmatists, I think very much in keeping with uh, the president's uh, own uh, philosophy. These are not uh, ideologues of any kind. They're people who have long, long experience dealing with foreign policy issues. They also have an attribute which I think is particularly important in the arena of foreign and national security policy, which is a close personal relationship with the president himself. There's not going to be any issue of uh, uh, some sort of distance between the president and his closest advisors. And therefore, I think you can expect that there'll be less of a uh, revolving door element to uh, the pre president-elect's team than has been the case in, uh, in this uh, particular uh, existing uh, administration. Let me mention a couple of uh, what I think are gonna be standout uh, issues uh, for the new administrations. Um, the first I would uh, mention is the emphasis on democracy. 
the president-elect has said that he wants to have a global summit for democracy. I think he believes that this is a, uh, democracy undergirds uh, not only our own society, but our relationship uh, with other societies. And I think that's going to be uh, a very interesting development. Of course, it's consistent with uh, revitalizing your alliances uh, because uh, our alliance relationships are for the most part also with democratic uh, countries. So that'll, those will be self-reinforcing uh, elements of that aspect of his uh, policies. I think he's going to alter our uh, migration and refugee policy uh, substantially. He's talked about uh, raising the number of refugee admissions. Of course, you have to do this with the approval of Congress, but to 125,000 uh, per annum, which is a, a very high number compared to what the current administration has done, which has cut really uh, refugee admissions uh, down to a virtual trickle. I think that clearly they're going to make some changes uh, on our approach to, to uh, border uh, refugees and border asylum seekers, uh, uh, both with respect to uh, 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 unaccompanied uh, minors and also with respect to uh, whether or not we oblige people seeking asylum from uh, Mexico and Central America to await uh, adjudication of their cases on the Mexican side of the border. So we'll see movement uh, on that front. He's talked about elevating uh, diplomacy and reinvesting in our diplomatic core and putting uh, diplomacy back in the control of professionals. His, uh, his personnel announcement so far would appear to be consistent uh, with that approach. Uh, there, there are a lot of ideas circulating, including a couple of major studies, one uh, at Harvard University about what can be done to revitalize and reform the foreign service. So I think we can expect uh, uh, some movement uh, on that front. Uh, one of the authors of uh, one of these reports is Linda Thomas Greenfield, herself a retired career foreign service officer who's now been named to be our ambassador, our permanent representative at the United Nations. Uh, climate, we've already mentioned, getting to net zero emissions by the year uh, 2050, joining Paris on day one. I think that also is going to be uh, rejoining Paris. Uh, it's also gonna be a standout issue. What are the major challenges, Clark? Clark uh, uh, asked that at the beginning. Uh, clearly, I think, uh, Challenge number one, although it's not listed in his top priorities, but he's going to have to deal with it fairly early on, is the issue of United States-China uh, relations, which have uh, uh, deteriorated uh, in the last uh, four years and uh, uh, in some in respects uh, border on open uh, hostility. Uh, but cer certainly the relationship is not only uh, competitive, but I think uh, in many aspects, uh, downright antagonistic. So I think there's a uh, sorting out process here that is going to have to take place as to uh, what parts of the relationship uh, can be revived uh, and uh, in, in such a way as to make a constructive cooperation on at least some areas possible. And what areas are we gonna continue to have to be, act with a fairly, uh, firm 
hand. And, and I think uh, judging from his own commentary, I think Mr. Biden has a pretty clear-eyed view of both the positive and the negative aspects of United States-China relations. There is the issue of timing and sequencing with so much to do at the beginning of an administration, how much is he gonna be able to do on China early, early on? I, I'm not entirely certain. Uh, one thing that uh, past administrations have done in that kind of situation when they're first taking office is have a study, have an interagency study that takes uh, a month or two uh, to uh, try and uh, outline what maybe some of the major decisions confronting us in our relationship with China might be. Uh, Iran and the Middle East, uh, big, big issue, I think, for the administration. They're very committed to the uh, JCPOA, the, the Joint Comprehensive Agreement with Iran uh, on nuclear matters that uh, the current administration abrogated. The president-elect has said he would he would go back to that agreement if, if Iran vowed to uh, scrupulously uh, observe uh, that agreement's provisions. He leaves himself a little bit of wriggle room in his rhetoric, rhetoric uh, of late uh, to talk about some of the other issues that weren't covered by the original JCPOA and which uh, some have advocated uh, be dealt with, such as uh, Iran's uh, uh, anti-social behavior, if you will, in uh, in its own neighborhoods, supporting uh, rebel groups, the activities of their Revolutionary Guard for force, and so forth. So I do think there does arise the question of whether he insists that some of those issues at least be addressed uh, in some fashion uh, as a condition of uh, restoring uh, the Iran uh, agreement. But clearly, they're they're interested in moving. Uh, back in that uh, direction. Uh, and uh, I think we'll see some changes in that area. I, I consider Mexico to be um, a problem or an issue that the president's elect is gonna have to deal with fairly early on. There's been a real deterioration of law and order in that country. The economy is not in good shape. And after all, Mexico is not only a neighbor with a 2000 mile uh, common border with us, but they also are one of our largest uh, uh, and depending uh, usually uh, sort of uh, uh, on the time uh, of the day or the year, uh, so, uh, sometimes is our largest single uh, trading partner. So I think we're gonna have to give that relationship a uh, considerable amount of attention as uh, do I believe he's gonna wanna uh, pay quite a bit of attention to the relationship with Russia, but again, Back to my original point about the concern with domestic issues, there is the matter of uh, the timing and how soon he's gonna get around to those issues in any kind of depth. Uh, as recent uh, days have reminded us, uh, cybersecurity issues just keep looming larger and larger uh, as time uh, goes on and capabilities uh, improve and increase around the world to uh, conduct attacks uh, against us and others. And uh, I think he's going to have to give some kind of an urgent attention uh, to that matter. Uh, as a general proposition, as someone who was a former director of national intelligence, I, I think I can safely say we've, we've always, uh, we, we've never spent quite enough time on 
cyber defenses and uh, our bureaucracy tends to be somewhat more, including our intelligence agencies, more organized uh, around uh, the concept of offensive cyber activities. But I do think that we've got to improve our defenses as uh, we've been reminded in the last uh, couple of weeks or so. Uh, there are a lot of other uh, foreign policy opportunities out there that I'm sure will uh, develop over time, whether it's uh, <clears throat> developing partnerships in Asia, strengthening uh, our relationships with the ASEAN countries, with India, one of the countries which has had quite good relations with the Trump administration, uh, with Japan and South Korea and our ally uh, Australia out in that part of the world. Uh, there's the issue of trade. Uh, Mr. Trump withdrew from the TPP, the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership, uh, the minute he took office, leaving us with no multilateral trading arrangements uh, in that uh, part of the world. And that's, I think, going to uh, require uh, some thought. Uh, and last, uh, but certainly not least, and <clears throat> related to the point that I made about Mexico, I think there's the question of uh, a North American uh, competitiveness uh, platform with uh, uh, onshoring activities with countries uh, uh, not outsourcing uh, in as far distant places as they used to. I think there's some real opportunities to develop uh, Canada, Mexico, and ourselves as a kind of a uh, economic powerhouse a regional powerhouse uh, for uh, the future. Anyway, Clark, those are a few uh, initial uh, thoughts and uh, be happy to answer any, try to answer any questions or comments. Well, thank you very much, Ambassador. That's terrific. You've set the table very well and we have a number of questions as you would imagine. So let me start with Russia. You referenced in passing the cyber attack, the really massive cyber attack that we've just learned about in the last couple of days, how do you think the incoming Biden administration should respond to it? It seems that in the past, when we've had provocations of one kind or another, including cyber provocations from Russia, our go-to tactic has been sanctions. And it seems to me that we've sanctioned, you know, to a fairly well with little, if any, effect on Russia's behavior. Is it time to use our offensive cyber capabilities with regard to Russia? Yeah. Well, you didn't mention the third possibility, which is to use our diplomatic capabilities. <laughs> Maybe the area towards which I would gravitate. Um, yeah, I mean, sanctions have not worked especially well. I think sanctions tend to, um, especially if they're unilateral, and I think we have many examples of this, whether it's Venezuela or Iran or anywhere else. Um, if they're unilateral, they, they tend to simply uh, aggravate uh, the country that one is trying to affect and, and at times can make even perhaps make worsen the behavior that you're concerned about. I am very cautious when it comes to the issue of using our offensive cyber uh, capabilities. Um, you might, you know, for demonstration uh, effect uh, might want to consider doing that at some point, but it certainly wouldn't be my first instinct. I know a lot of people say, well, you got to make them pay a price. You know, you got to make them. 
Well, one way to deal with this is to maybe not make it so darned easy and uh, put a little more brain power into how to uh, avert these things, uh, which I suspect uh, quite a bit more can be done, and, and including our own domestic legislation and our own approaches to uh, public-private cooperation on these things. There, it's still been very difficult to get domestic legislation obliging companies to share information about incidents with the government. There isn't the public-private partnership to combat uh, uh, cyber activities, cyber crime, that there ought to be. And frankly, I think that ought to be the, uh, the focus of our efforts. Secondly, diplomacy has not been tried to the extent that it could be. There have been some discussions, there have been some discussions in Europe, there have been some codes of conduct that have been um, it about and some that exist. But I think more discussion about uh, how to, uh, rules of the road for cyber. I know it's not identical to nuclear weapons and uh, I don't know whether you can have a non-proliferation treaty for cyber, but you can do more than nothing. And uh, I think that that's, another, we, we made some progress, for example, I think in, in our talks with China back in 2015, 2015, I think it was 2015 between President Obama and President Xi Jinping of China. Well, you know, I think we need a, we need more of that. And of course, if you've sanctioned a country and sort of kind of reduced their appetite for any diplomatic contact with them in the first place, it makes it a little bit difficult. But that's the way I would try to go. Speaking of China, um, you talked a little bit about the economic relationship. Let's talk just for a minute about the military relationship. How do you think the Biden administration should respond to the South China Sea uh, issue? Okay. That's the hardest question, in my opinion, the hardest question. First of all, maybe some of the easier parts of it. I think we should continue to strengthen to try to strengthen military to military relationships. 10, 15, 20 years ago, the Chinese military were sort of hid um, you know, behind the scenes. They, they didn't have many international contacts. They didn't, uh, they felt uncomfortable dealing with us uh, in diplomatic settings. I think that's gotten a little bit better. Um, and I think that should continue. Uh, we should have diplomatic dialogue at at uh, every opportunity, uh, efforts to avoid incidents at sea, uh, general discussions, periodic meetings, uh, they should be part of any strategic and political dialogue that, that, that we have, military on both sides. So uh, that's one thing. Um, the Obama administration supported the Philippines in its uh, arbitral uh, proceedings in The Hague and, and uh, actually the Philippines won its case. I, I don't think it's done anything in terms of altering China's uh, behavior as a practical matter. Uh, and uh, I suspect that's gonna continue to be the case. So I think that there, I think we just have to maintain our position of legal support for the winners in that arbitral decision. But if you're asking me, uh, should we use our military to push 
the Chinese off some of the shoals and reefs that they have uh, improperly claimed, uh, I don't. I, I don't think I would put uh, peace between us and China at risk o over an issue uh, like that. So it's going to be. Uh, this is a long-term issue, and I think uh, we've got to just patiently, through diplomatic activity in general with China. Uh, make sure our position is clear, support our friends, encourage, this may be very difficult, but encourage unity amongst the ASEAN countries. Because every time we get close to, let's say, a code of conduct or some kind of a positive uh, affirmation by the, the group of Southeast Asian countries, the Chinese always manage to get Cambodia or Laos or both uh, to disagree with the consensus. So I think we've got to work on that as well. But uh, I think patience... And, uh, you know, keep reminding China that we are a Pacific nation and we plan to uphold our responsibilities in the Pacific Ocean. What about China and Taiwan? May I, I just Please. see that Jonathan Miller came up on the screen with that. Please. That question. Uh, and I think what I'd say on that is the, uh, this existing administration has probably been um, more, out in front and uh, reached out, you know, reached farther, pushed the envelope farther uh, than any recent administration in its support uh, for Taiwan. Now, I think, you know, we gotta be careful how we do that. And I think it's good, particularly in the context also of the president's elect support for democracy to uh, try to keep, uh, maintain a good relationship with China, China uh, Taiwan because it's been such a success on the democratic front. But again, not to the point of abrogating the Shanghai communiques or crossing any Chinese red lines that, be, that brings them crashing down uh, on Taiwan itself militarily, which I think if those lines were crossed in some kind of definitive way, there would be a risk that they would do. I would be, I, I would not treat any uh, affirmation by the People's Republic of China that uh, it's going to come to the defense of its interests vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan. I would Taiwan. I wouldn't treat those lightly. Turning to the Middle East, uh, of course, the Trump administration was closely allied with Israel, which is an understatement. Uh, and we've had very little positive interaction with the Palestinians over the course of the last four years. How do you see the Israeli-Palestinian um, issue? being played out over the course of the four years of the Biden administration. Yeah, yeah, hard to tell. It's that certainly, I don't think that's something that's gonna, you know, happen right away. And, and I, I think even the Biden team acknowledges that some of the accomplishments of the Trump administration, for example, uh, securing or helping secure Arab country recognition of Israel, like Bahrain and the UAE and Sudan and now Morocco. I mean, these these are pretty important accomplishments. Now you've got six out of the 22 Arab countries uh, with uh, the political diplomatic relationships with, with Israel. And I think that's consequential and it's almost a critical mass. If, uh, if Saudi Arabia were to come over, uh, then that would really be quite something. Uh, so we, I think that's a that's a plus. 
some people might argue with the price that was paid for that, like re recognizing Morocco's claim over the Western Sahara and so forth. Uh, Mr. Biden is committed, I believe, to a two-state solution and uh, is, you know, knows, the, uh, knows Palestinian leaders quite well. So I, I doubt he will neglect that issue. I guess my question would have to do with timing. At what point would he want to pursue that issue? At what point and when? And uh, let's uh, just add one other point, which is I'm sure that Mr. Biden values the United States relationship with Israel as well as uh, a Jewish political support uh, here in the United States. Right. Speaking of Saudi Arabia, how do you foresee the relationship evolving between the United States and Saudi Arabia and a Biden administration? <laughs> well, he has said some pretty tough things about Saudi Arabia in the past. Right. So, so we'll have to see. Uh, I can remember right after 9-11, he was not very, uh, he had some pretty stern uh, remarks to make about uh, the fact that uh, uh, those people were of, of Saudi uh, background, the people involved in the in the incident, and I think he's uh, concerned about uh, human rights, and he's uh, committed, to, determined to make democracy a strong part of his platform. So I predict, Clark, that we'll get into the discussion we very often do get into uh, during uh, an administration that is very committed to human rights issues. At what point, uh, you know, in which cases do our human rights concerns prevail and in which cases do our uh, other interests prevail? And uh, you'll see a tug of war uh, between the various elements of our uh, bureaucracy over precisely those issues as we seek to implement the president's policies. I remember those very well in the Carter administration, for mm -hmm. example, and, and, and in subsequent administrations as well. <laughs> you began your diplomatic career in Vietnam in the early 60s. And so you certainly have lots of experience with, with long wars and winding down wars. So could you comment on the state of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and how you think the administration, the Biden administration should manage that? Well, I think most of the work has been done, I mean, for him. Uh, between what uh, Mr. Obama did and Mr. Trump, there's certainly there's no appetite to go back in there in large numbers. We've got a modest presence uh, in Iraq. We've got a modest presence, even more modest, in uh, uh, eastern uh, Syria. Uh, I think... Uh, the question for him is going to be to what extent maintaining some sort of president presence like that uh, is uh, advances our interests, provides some kind of minimal level of reassurance and security to uh, the affected countries, uh, and yet at virtually no military co uh, cost uh, to ourselves. So I, I would suspect he's not going to withdraw us completely. Uh, from that part of the world. I think he remains interested. He was certainly interested throughout his uh, career, both as, uh, both as a senator and as, uh, as the vice president. So um, I'm, not sure we, I'm not sure we're gonna see any dramatic change in our approach uh, to, uh, to, well, to Iraq and Syria uh, in any event, if that was your question. Yes. Terrorism, thankfully we have not had a major terror attack um, since 
I'm a little surprised there hasn't been a serious attempt during the course of the Trump administration, given the administration's rhetoric about the Muslim world. Um, how do you think the Biden administration should prepare for the prospect of one during the course of its time in office? Well, I think we should maintain uh, some of the capabilities we have. We've certainly, our special operation forces are more proficient and more efficient and effective than they were much more efficient by an order of magnitude, it seems to me, uh, compared to prior to 9-11. Uh, well, let's not allow that capability to uh, significantly deteriorate. Let's, let's keep it up. Uh, but uh, other than that, I'm not, uh, and, and, and of course, uh, keep up our strong intelligence capabilities. And I don't, I don't doubt that we will we'll do that. But uh, I think we've also moved on in terms of what we think the principal military challenges uh, are at the moment, right? And uh, they, they tend to be more uh, state actors uh, and the like. And uh, I don't think we're quite in the same position vis-a-vis -vis international terrorism as we were post 9-11. I see here, uh, Clark, a couple of questions, uh, but particularly there was one about Venezuela. Yes, I was gonna ask uh, you that. Please. Yeah, what about the escalating humanitarian crisis in Venezuela? Well, I, I heard something yesterday, I'm not sure it's correct, but some reference to someone in the campaign, maybe the uh, president-elect himself, uh, the, someone's advocating that we uh, have talks with uh, the Maduro regime. Uh, which strikes me as a, you know, a plausible position if that was actually what was said. But I think um, we'll see the administration moving away a bit from a sanctions-oriented policy, I suspect. And I think uh, focus on the humanitarian crisis that exists uh, both uh, in the country, uh, providing adequate food, uh, and comfort for their own people, uh, as well as the several million now, I think, refugees who fled uh, out, uh, who are outside uh, the Venezuelan border. So that, that I think will be one element of it. And the other will be probably uh, seeking uh, some kind of contact with the uh, Venezuelan administration. But I think based on the notion that uh, they will conduct uh, free and fair uh, elections at some uh, point in the not too distant future, Future. But I don't think, I, I think the confrontational elements of the Venezuela policy will likely diminish, if not disappear entirely. Let's talk a bit about NATO in the remaining minutes we have. Um, obviously, as you said at the beginning, uh, reviving our relationship with Europe in general and NATO in particular is critically important now that uh, the, the sanctity of our commitment has been called into question over the course of the last four years. What more can we do to reassure our NATO allies um, of our commitment to the NATO alliance? Well, I think uh, you're gonna see certainly a number of uh, gestures uh, towards NATO. I'm sure there'll be uh, early meeting, whether it's a NATO meeting itself or the meeting of democracies or, or probably both. I think you'll see potential travel you know, people very often, you know, the one of the parlor games in this town always is, well, where will the president go first? Where will the secretary travel to when they go abroad? Well, you know, Brussels and Europe is not a bad guess. Uh, 
for one of these two leaders to go uh, to France, Germany, uh, Brussels, uh, UK, etc. So uh, I think uh, there's that that symbolic part, um, and I think just a generally more positive attitudes to, towards uh, alliances in general, and the idea that uh, that we can't do these things alone. It's uh, it, it's uh, we're we're in our best when we cooperate with others. Uh, we uh, have a multiplier effect through these uh, alliances, and that uh, we we plan to to take the best and most positive advantage of these kinds of relationships rather than touting the notion of America first, uh, which I think at times was interpreted as America alone. And I don't think we wanna do things uh, as America alone. You were the first, as I mentioned, director of national intelligence. How would you say our reorganization of the intelligence community back in 2004 now 16 years old, how do you think it's turned out? Uh, are we better organized? Are we better focused as an intelligence community? And what in particular do you think of President-elect Biden's choice of Avril Haines to be the new DNI? Well, I mean, I'm glad he made that choice first because just the very act, uh, I think a previous, uh, I think Mr. Trump chose, may have chosen the CIA director first, I can't recall, but the, the emphasis was put on who's the head of the CIA. Right. And uh, that sort of suggests that nothing's really changed. And so to name Avril Haines, I think was positive. Uh, it signals the importance of the Directorate of National Intelligence and the coordinating and the support role that it can play in uh, the management of our 17 different uh, intelligence uh, agencies. So that that I think is a good uh, a good thing. I think that uh, the ODNI, the I, I wouldn't mess around with a reform. I, I wouldn't change it. I think that'd probably be opening a sort of a can of worms to try to change that legislation. And now that Susan Collins of Maine has been reelected, she was one of the two uh, sponsors of that legislation, and I doubt she would allow any changes uh, to be uh, made to it. But um, no, I, I, and, and I think uh, an important point, both with respect to the Foreign Service, the State Department, and the intelligence community, I think Mr. Biden is going to rely more on professional help. He's going to avoid politicization of these institutions. Uh, Avril Haines has background, having been the deputy head of the CIA, having worked in the National Security Council. The president-elect has also said he's going to leave our diplomacy more to the professionals and he's gonna support the revitalization of our foreign service. And I think that's the approach. The president, the current president was not sufficiently respectful of the professionalism of our foreign service and of our intelligence community or for our military for that matter. Right. Two last questions, sir. What about the proposed split between the NSA, the National Security Agency and DOD Cyber Command. Should they be split in your view as the administration is? I have no about? big opinion on that other than to say, I think, you know, all the, all the analytic capability uh, is in the NSA. And uh, once you start, you know, it becomes a little bit like separating Siamese twins. <laughs> it, 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 it'll, be a ch it'll be a challenge. Right. Um, well, the final question, sir, is to talk about what you began with, and that is the nexus between domestic affairs and foreign affairs. And it's notable in that regard, don't you think, that 
Jake Sullivan, the incoming national security advisor, has talked in recent years about the importance of domestic policy and has tried to convince the average American of why he or she should care about foreign policy. And surprisingly to me, the president's new president-elect's new domestic policy advisor is Susan Rice, formerly the national security advisor. So can you have a closing comment about that title? Yeah, well, I think, I, well, first of all, I think she's a very good choice. Uh, but, but secondly, um, one of the critical components of our diplomacy and of our national security is our economic strength. I mean, without a dynamic economy that represents roughly you know, close to 20% of the world's gross domestic product, um, our diplomacy and our military uh, prowess uh, become less effective. Uh, we don't, it don't, doesn't have the same credibility. Um, if our economy were in shambles, uh, I mean, people would pay less attention to us. So I think, uh, and we would have less influence. So I think uh, the economy is important. And of course, uh, the domestic and the international elements of our economy uh, are inextricably linked with each other, as we know from the various complicated trade issues that we've got, be it with China or with the North American free trade agreement countries or with the European Union or with the Trans-Pacific Partnership countries. So uh, it is a globalized world. We can't deny that. We're only 5% of the world's population. Everyone, please join me in thanking Ambassador John Negroponte. Ambassador, thank you so much and happy holidays to you and to your family. Thank you, Clark, and same to you and uh, all of those of you who are uh, participating in this meeting. Thank you. Thank you so much.